Section 28 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies, An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases, by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombow. Homicide, Part 5. The Goss Utterzook Tragedy, Part 4. William E. Utterzook. I reside at number 167 Conway Street. By trade I am a smith and edge tool maker, formerly a teacher of fine arts. Have resided in Baltimore, in the same house, eight years. I have known Winfield Scott Goss some five or six years. On the afternoon of the fire, I met with him about two o'clock, and proceeded with him to the house occupied by him, situated near the York Road, where we spent the afternoon and portion of the evening together. I have been there frequently before this time. He was engaged in perfecting the invention of a substitute for India rubber. He had his vat in the cellar, and forced the hot air or steam from the stove in the room over the cellar, through a pipe running through the floor into a chest in the cellar. His workroom for gilding looking-glass frames was in the northeast room of the house. He and I were both in the cellar that afternoon. It was nearly half-past eight o'clock that evening when I left the house for the purpose of procuring a lamp from Mr. Engel's house, as the lamp we had would not burn. He left us at the door and closed and locked it after us. Before we left, he, Engel, and myself had been trying to make the lamp burn. It was a very large glass lamp. Question. Was there anything passed between you and Mr. Goss when you left? Anything said by you or him as to what you were going for? Answer. It was understood we were going for a lamp. That was the arrangement. Witness further testified. I do not think we were absent from the house more than fifteen minutes. I had been to Mr. Engel's house before. I had stopped there that afternoon and borrowed an axe, and I returned the axe about sunset same day. At that time I took supper with the family. They were just seated at the table, and we were very intimate. I was at Mr. Engel's house when I heard the alarm, heard the cry of fire from someone in the neighborhood, and I opened the door to go out of the house, and saw the light of the fire at the same time. The flames were illuminating the neighborhood then, which was within ten or fifteen minutes from the time I had left Mr. Goss. I waited a very few minutes for the lamp, and when it was ready I went out of the dining-room into the kitchen. When I opened the door I saw the reflection of the light from the burning house." I set the lamp back on the table and announced to the family that the cottage was on fire and ran across the field in company with Mr. Engel's son. At the time we arrived, the fire had spread to such an extent that it was impossible to effect an entrance into the house or to get open the door. The glass was dropping from the heat and the roof was in flames from one end to the other before I reached the house. I spoke to Mr. Engel and told him that if Goss did not appear in a few moments, I would take it for granted he was in the fire, although, I said, it would not be safe to say so at present. I waited a few moments, 
and then I requested Louis Engel to go and deliver the sad tidings to his wife and the family, which he did. After the house had burned down sufficiently, and the fire had subsided, they succeeded in finding the body. It was carried to a barn and placed in a box there. The next afternoon the coroner took charge of it, after which I went with the undertaker to the barn and brought away the body to his residence, number 314 North Utah Street, from where it was afterwards buried. I recognized it as being his body, judging by the size and shape of the head, and the size of the neck and breast, which were not much disfigured. I claimed it to be his body. I had a perfect right to do so, I think. I noticed a considerable flow of blood coming from the body. Cross-examination by Mr. Wallace. Mr. Goss and I married sisters. I married into the family the fall of 1865, had not known Mr. Goss prior to that time. I am employed by the firm of Duker and Bro as an edge tool maker and a smith. Previous to the war, I was engaged in teaching penmanship and fine painting in oil in Pennsylvania. I had an interest with Mr. Goss in the manufacture of his substitute for India rubber. That was the object of my going out to the cottage with him. He had not yet made an effort to procure a patent. He told me that if I would devote a portion of my time with him and furnish some capital, I should have a share in the invention. I furnished him $200 up to that time. My wages are from $13 to $22 a week. My time contributed was in keeping him company. Mr. Goss had specimens of his substitute for rubber, which he exhibited. They were cut in square chunks, as rubber usually is, and he was in the habit of carrying them about with him. On the afternoon of the fire, I went out there with him, as he told me he had some very nice samples, and he was going to work on some that afternoon. I knocked off work that afternoon for the purpose of going out with him. We walked out to the intersection of Charles Street with the Waverly streetcars, and rode out as far as Waverly. At Waverly, Mr. Goss bought a half pint of whiskey and a gallon of coal oil, which we took to the cottage, and about a quart of the oil was put in the lamp. We stopped on our way at Mr. Engel's house, where I borrowed an axe. My purpose in getting the axe was to cut a little wood to make a fire to heat up the house and heat the stove, in order that we might spend the evening in a warm room. From Engel's house we went to the cottage, where I proceeded to make a fire. He filled the vessel on the stove with water for the purpose of raising a little hot air or steam in the vat which was in the cellar. Occasionally he would go into the cellar to see how the preparation was working. I remained in the room on the floor above. I was in all the rooms that afternoon, but most of the time in the room where the stove was. It was a cold day, and there was some snow on the ground. About sunset I went back to Mr. Engel's house for the purpose of returning the axe. I remained there about half an hour. Mr. Gottlieb Engel then went back with me to the cottage. Goss unlocked the door and let us into the house. Mr. Goss visited the cellar once or twice after that. Mr. Engel and I remained in the room where the stove was. The lamp did not burn well. Apparently the wick was wet. 
Mr. Engel left the house with me for the purpose of going and getting a lamp. We left Mr. Goss in the dark, with only the light of the stove. I believe there was a little piece of candle there that he had been using. I heard the cry of fire before I left the Engel house. When I got to the cottage, the flames had burst through the windows and had thoroughly spread over the roof. All the rooms were apparently full of flame and smoke. I spoke to nobody but the Engels of my suspicions that my brother-in-law, Mr. Goss, might be in the flames. There was no one else there that I knew until Mr. Lowndes was pointed out to me. Mr. Wallace. In the name of heaven, if a man is burning up, do you have to be introduced before you will ask for assistance in pulling out the burning man? Utterzook. I claim that I performed my duty by sending a message to the family. Witness continued. I returned to the city, Baltimore, about eleven o'clock that night. I went first to number 314 North Utah Street, where Mrs. Goss resided. After I left Mrs. Goss, I approached a police officer on the street and made known to him the nature of the accident that had occurred and explained to him that I believed it was caused by the explosion of a coal oil lamp. We went into a tobacconist's and I gave him the details. The clerk at the tobacconist's store wrote the statement down. I asked the officer if he thought we would have time to have it published that night. He said he thought we would if it reached the newspaper office before two o'clock. I was anxious to have this get into the newspapers the next morning. Andrew J. Lowndes. The burned cottage was my property. It was a light frame building. Mr. Goss applied to me in the summer or autumn of 1871 to rent the house, as it was then vacant. I reluctantly consented to let it to him. That was my first meeting with him. Mr. Goss was a large, full-chested man. I was at the fire. After the house was pretty much consumed, my attention was first called to the suspicion of there being anybody in the fire by a man whom I did not know at the time, but in the inquest I learned it was Mr. Utterzook. I saw the charred remains after they were taken from the fire. They were very much burned. The chest had been lacerated in being drawn out. The face was partly burned and a great deal defaced. The head seemed to be whole. It appeared to be the body of a large man. Cross-examined by Mr. Wallace. Mr. Goss wanted to rent the house to perfect some discovery or invention of his own. I first declined to rent it to him. He subsequently applied through another person, and I finally yielded to his request. He was to pay $10 a month rent. It was let monthly. I think he had it four or five months. At the time of the fire, when I first went to the burning building, there was no other one there except my son, who went with me. I heard no noise, no cries, no explosion. In ten or fifteen minutes, a considerable number of persons had gathered there. After the house was mostly consumed, I was leaning against the fence, conversing with some neighbors, when Mr. Utterzook came up to me, somewhat solemnly, and said, I think he is in the house. I turned to him and said, Who is in the house? He replied, Mr. Goss. I said, Can it be possible Mr. Goss is in the house? I asked who he was, and he said he was the brother-in-law of Mr. Goss. I said to him, 
Is it possible that you, knowing Mr. Goss was in there, have not given the alarm before? His reply was that he had been looking for Mr. Goss. Failing to find him, he felt sure he must be in the house and burned up. I said to him, Sir, you might have alarmed the whole neighborhood. We would rather have had a false alarm than for a human being to be burned up alive. At the time Mr. Utterzook gave this information, there was nothing standing of the building but a few scantling. The roof had fallen in, the sides and chimney had fallen. Mrs. Eliza W. Goss. Examination by her counsel, Mr. Whitney. I am the widow of Winfield Scott Goss, had been married nine years. The first information I received of my husband's death was between nine and ten o'clock the night of the fire. This was from Louis Engel, who had come from the fire. Later that night, my brother-in-law, Mr. Utterzook, made me aware of the fact of my husband's death. His body was brought home the next evening. I recognized it as my husband's body by the very full neck, full throat, and broad shoulders. I cut off a small quantity of hair to preserve, but a few days afterwards I found it reduced to powder. My husband was formerly in the looking-glass and gilding business. He was also getting up a patent for a revolving-handle screwdriver. Cross-examined. My husband was engaged in the manufacture of a substitute for India rubber. He kept the secret of it entirely to himself. Reverend Richard Fuller. Mr. Goss was a member of the church of which I was pastor in 1860. He removed out west some time after that, and I have not seen him since. I officiated at his funeral. I am acquainted with his brother, A.C. Goss. He is a member of the church of which I am now pastor. Cross-examination. A.C. Goss became a member of my church immediately after the funeral of his brother. Mrs. Sarah Arden. I am the mother of Mrs. Goss. The last time I saw my son-in-law, Mr. Goss, alive, was between twelve and one o'clock the day of the accident. He was then at home at dinner. I never saw him again until his corpse was brought into the house. I saw the body very much charred, could not recognize any features. I saw sufficient to satisfy me who it was. I had no doubt about it at all. David Arden. I am stepfather of Mrs. Goss. She was living at my house. I first saw the corpse of Mr. Goss at the inquest. So far as the shape of the head and neck and chest are concerned, it corresponded with him. Cross-examined. It looked like a piece of coke. It was all charred. You could recognize no features. There was nothing peculiar about the chest otherwise than it was a full neck and full-chested man. Gottlieb Engel. I reside out on the York Road. I went with Mr. Utterzook to the cottage the evening of the fire. I was in the south room only. While we were there, Mr. Goss called to Utterzook to bring him a light. They tried to light the coal oil lamp, but it would not burn. I said to them I could fix it by turning the wick, but Mr. Goss said it was dangerous. Mr. Utterzook and I went to my house for another lamp. My mother got a lamp, and we were ready to go back when we discovered the cottage was on fire. I went to the fire, but returned home before the body was found. Mr. Utterzook came to our house after the fire was over, and said they had found the body. 
when he came into the house he burst into tears, covered his face with a handkerchief, and trembled so he could scarcely speak. Cross-examined. I had known Mr. Goss about six months. Mr. Goss and Mr. Utterzook were at our place about three o'clock that afternoon. Mr. Goss invited me to come to the cottage and see him that evening. After that, he and Utterzook went to the cottage. About supper time, I saw Utterzook again. He came to return an axe and took supper with us. After supper, he and I went to the cottage. Mr. Goss unlocked the door and let us in. There was a coal oil lamp burning in the room we went into. Mr. Goss brought the lamp out of a room where it was and put it in the southeast room. I was in only two rooms that night, the southeast and southwest rooms. Mr. Goss went into the northeast room a couple of times when I was at the cottage and closed the door behind him each time he went into that room. He took the lamp with him each time. When he came out of that room at one time, he said something about a fortune, something about wishing he had his fortune. While Goss was taking the lamp from one room to the other, the light went out. Goss then called to Utterzook to bring him a light. Utterzook first took a lighted paper, but it went out. Then he lighted a stick, and with it lighted a piece of tallow candle three or four inches long. Goss tried to light the lamp with the candle, but from some cause it would not light. I was standing a few feet off, and said to them it could be fixed by turning the wick. Goss said, No, coal oil is very dangerous. I offered to get a lamp, and asked Goss to go over with me and get his supper. Goss refused, and said Utterzook should go with me as company. I said I could go by myself, but I had nothing against Mr. Utterzook's going with me. When we went out, Goss locked the door after us. He had no light when we left, but there was a tallow candle there on the workbench. We walked over leisurely and remained, waiting for the lamp to be got ready, ten minutes or longer. I heard no alarm of fire, but when I went out on the porch I saw the reflection of the flames, and then walked to the end of the porch and saw the cottage was on fire. We all stood and looked for a while, and then ran. My brother Louis started first. I reached the fence before Utterzook did, and waited there until he had time to catch up with me. Then we went together to the fire. We walked the rest of the way. Utterzook and I remained together until the house was burned down. Before I left to go home, he asked me to point out Mr. Lowndes to him, which I did. At this stage of the trial, a little evidence was introduced in support of the general reputation for truth and veracity of A.C. Goss and of Utterzook. Plaintiff's counsel then read to the jury the correspondence between the insurance companies and Mrs. Goss through their respective counsel relative to an exhumation and examination of the charred remains which had been buried as those of Goss. Plaintiff here rested. Mr. Hinckley presented the opening statement of defendants to the jury. A. H. Barnett's. I am a clerk in the office of the assistant treasurer in Baltimore. I am familiar with the personal appearance of Winfield Scott Goss. Have a vivid recollection of him at this time. In ordinary conversation, he disclosed his teeth, which were very good and regular. After his alleged death, I went to see what I supposed would be his remains. I called at his residence in Utah Street, 
and was shown the corpse as it lay in the coffin. I could see no point of resemblance between Mr. Goss and the corpse. I saw the head and neck. It was perfectly charred and burned, so I could not recognize it as Goss or as anybody else. Cross-examination. I speak of his teeth being good and regular from what casual observation I made. Charles Hahn. I am a bookkeeper in the National Mechanics Bank. Winfield S. Goss made his first deposit in this bank, June 17, 1871, and his last deposit was on the following January 17, 1872. He left his book at the bank to be balanced, and it was balanced and returned to him with his checks on the 31st of January, 1872. The balance due him was $365.75. He presented a check for the exact amount of the balance on the first day of February, which was cashed. End of section 28